Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to another episode of Undying Light. I am your host, Alex, and I am back at it with you again in the Eschatology series. Uh, for those who are tuning in for the first time, we are in the middle. We are probably now shoulder deep in eschatology. We are just plowing through everything. We have done the four major uh, viewpoints. We have looked at some of the world uh, religions and some of the pagan philosophy behind eschatology earlier in this season. And then we looked at the Old Testament uh, at the end of last year. And then we break for a Christmas series. And then we picked back up and started the New Testament in January when we spent a number of weeks in the Olivet Discord discourse. And we spent, uh, I don't know, eight or so weeks there. Uh, we walked through chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew. And with that, we paralleled ourselves through Mark 13 and Luke 21. Uh, we spent some time looking at how some of the passages might just change the verbiage a little bit or how maybe Luke has just a little bit more uh, or maybe Mark has, you know, something or a piece of information. So. Uh, for those who don't know, I'm actually recording this um, also on video so my patrons can actually watch me. And I've done a behind the scenes build up to, you know, this particular episode and how uh, I kind of put some of the work into prepping for the show. And now they get to actually watch me and uh, see me do the show live, if you would. It's uh, recorded, but, you know, they'll see it in real person. And they get to see my dynamic hands. And I, I really talk with my hands. I'm legitimately sitting here emphasizing with my hands. And so they'll get that in the uh, video. So kind of something that I'm trying to do, this will be probably the only time I'll do a whole podcast because sometimes they can get up to an hour plus long. Those are long videos. Um, otherwise I might do 10 or 15, 20 minute videos and just kind of do short bits. So this is where we are, guys. We just wrapped up Matthew 25 last week. We went through all of those verses between 24 and 25. We walked through, and I keep hitting my mic stand here, and we broke through uh, uh, and unpacked 
everything that Jesus was talking about. Now, we do have to make ourselves very clear that there is much more in regards to eschatology than just this particular sermon. There's so much, in fact, in the Bible that points us to the greater something, and that's called typology, right? It's a greater coming, or for instance, uh, Paul refers to Adam as a type of uh, Christ, and because uh, he was a lesser Christ, he was the first Adam, Jesus is the second Adam. So we get that typology that kind of happens throughout Scripture, and eschatology is no different. When we look at the Old Testament, what we unpacked was the fact that they weren't necessarily looking for the end of the world per se, but they were looking for a Messiah. And so that was in essence, their eschatology was, when will this promised Messiah come and rescue us from this world? Now, the New Testament is different. We have the promised Messiah now, and so we must understand uh, what it means to really look and study the end of times. And so uh, we unpacked the Olivet Discourse and we looked at some of the things that um, Jesus was saying about when is the world going to end? We un and, and actually kind of talked about the you know ending of the world and the new heavens and the new earth and things like that. So we didn't necessarily take any particular you know, position between uh, pre, pre-mill or post-mill, dispensational, historical, or the amillennialist position. We try to just look at scripture in a non-biased manner and just kind of talk about what is it really saying. Now, some of these things that we are going to get into in the Pauline series, and I think I'm going to kind of explain that here in a few minutes, uh, might fit a little bit better into those camps. They might fit better into a post-mill or a pre-mill or a revealed eschatology, however your hermeneutic kind of settles. Now, one of the things I've really um, kind of come to realize in this series, and I, I figured I was going to do an episode at the end, and I was going to talk about uh, what it means, you know, where, where do I land? But I think by the, this point, uh, I would probably identify with the amillennialist position. And I find it just makes the most sense as uh, we have continued to unpack scripture and it's all pointing towards, you know, Christ breaking the heavens open and that trumpet blast sounding. And so if you're curious more on uh, what the amillennialist position is, Chris Gardner, a pastor in New Jersey, was kind enough to join me. Uh, he's a very, very, very knowledgeable individual on uh, eschatology and most in particular, the amillennialist position. So go and check that out. Uh, it will help you understand it uh, much deeper. Uh, that episode, I believe we recorded and aired back in maybe September, I think was when we were doing the four September, I believe. So go back and look at those. So again, this series has been going on since August of last year. We've been just tearing through a ton of scripture and we have been looking at so many different writings um, and so many different books. Now, one of the things I kind of mentioned head on in the show is uh, the, the, the series here on Paul. Now, uh, I, I'm going to break it essentially down, I think, into two episodes. Today, we're going to look at a few pieces, uh, and then next week, we're going to look at the future of Israel in Romans 9 through 11. And the reason I say that is because 
Uh, first, there is a ton of scripture uh, that can be alluded to eschatology in Paul's writings or an eschatological perspective. Um, there's a lot of verbiage that Paul uses that is indicating, you know, to the coming of our Lord. So we won't be digging into every little piece of that, but we will touch base on some of the higher, more known pieces, some of the more controversial uh, pieces of scripture that definitely have been used in all of the camps, and we will try to unpack that um, in these two episodes. If I don't get to all of it in this episode, we will make a third and just kind of put all of the pieces together, if you would. Um, so we're, we are for sure only looking at two or three episodes. I've kind of settled on that earlier uh, as we were going through the Olivet Discourse that I didn't want to quite spend a ton of time, but I want to do Pauline eschatology right and justify this because Paul does write a lot and there's a lot here. And so I will point you into some resources if you want to read more and, and learn more about you know Paul's position. But I think for the, you know, the kind of the crux of this show, we've spent a ton of time on this series and I want to kind of keep the steam engine moving as we still have, um, you know, the energy to do so. So we will look at that today. A uh, couple quick pieces. As I mentioned, I am recording this live for my patrons. They are watching or they will be watching this after I'm done recording uh, and then. That's just kind of one of the, the few pieces, right? This show is listener supported. And so if you want to learn how to sponsor or support the show, you are more than welcome to send me a DM. There's links in my bio to get to the Patreon website. It's patreon.com forward slash undying light. And for as little as a dollar a month, you can come alongside this ministry and help, you know, push this ministry forward as we continue to grow. If you don't want to contribute financially, I that is okay. I'm not doesn't, doesn't bother me, but I do ask if you do like this show, then please uh, take the opportunity and leave me a review on whatever platform you listen to. We're on Audible now. You can listen to it on Auto, Audible Books through Amazon. We're on uh, obviously iTunes, Spotify, all of these platforms. So if you have the opportunity, please leave us a review and uh, share it with your friends, family, coworkers, church members, whoever it is that you think would be interested in hearing this. Because uh, that's the easiest way to get this out there. So that's really the biggest thing. Obviously, um, I talked to my patrons early in the show. I kind of showed them how I work my logos to get set up for this episode because this is not an easy one to deal with. And uh, so I'm always, you know, using logos literally for school, for ministry, everything. I literally live in logos. It is the crux to everything I do. And uh I, you know, I very rarely will go to Google for anything. Everything I have is in Logos Bible software. So great tool for just about anybody at any walk in their life. Um, and then, as I've mentioned a few times, you can get Undyne Light merchandise. If you want to check out uh, shirts, sweatshirts, or anything like that, and you want to put a particular um, quote on there, you are more than welcome to. And we will put whatever you want, and you can... Just DM me that quote and I'll put it on there and you can go buy the shirt. All right, guys. So we're knee deep into this. Actually, by now, like I said, shoulder deep. It's kind of, you know, we're trucking along here. Um, we've got just a few episodes on Paul. I did mention to a couple of the patrons that we will look at Peter's writings and possibly Jude. There might be a joint episode on those two 
uh, before we get to the book of Revelation. And then we will spend 21 weeks in the book of Revelation because there's seven sections. And then in each section, there's we'll probably kind of combine it into three. So at most 21 weeks there. So at this juncture, we're probably about 25 weeks yet away from finishing this race. And then we will move on to the next series. So there's a lot to go into this. And guys, when I set this out, you had all voted to go deep and to spend the time and to you know, turn over the stones and to cultivate this stuff. So uh, I've done as best as I could with the allotted time. And I hope guys that you have enjoyed this series and the show. Uh, and, and it really has been, you know, um, interesting and, and fantastic for me. I've enjoyed it. I really do love spending this time kind of cultivating this now, you know, it's, it's definitely not overturning every stone. There's so much out there yet with scripture and there's so much out there yet to unpack in regards to eschatology. So when I get to these types of points, it's hard to get everything in, right? So we're looking at Paul, we're looking at what he's written and uh, probably the foremost knowledgeable person on Pauline eschatology is Gerhard Voss. And I have this book in physical copy and I have it in my logos, but it is extraordinarily complex and it is a very deep onion to peel back. And and I'll be honest with you, I'm not a Hebrew or a Greek scholar and uh, he relies heavily on the transitions um, from Hebrew to English and from Greek to English. He uses a lot of these words and sometimes he doesn't even explain the words in there. He just drops them in there. And so it makes it exceptionally difficult for somebody like me, who's not a, you know, Greek philosopher or Greek theologian or Hebrew theologian, somebody who's, you know, proficient in those languages to read this book in one pass and to then say, Oh, I understand what he's saying here because it's going to take me a lot to go in and to unpack and and really dig into exactly what he's trying to say. And because I'm just looking at like chapter one and there's a lot of Hebrew already in there that I, I just, I'm going to be honest, I can't, I don't read it. I don't read Hebrew. So I'm <clears throat> going to use this book uh, sparingly. There are some stuff in here, I think, next week that we'll probably touch base on. But for tonight, uh, but for tonight, we're going to look at this book. Um, it's called Paul, Apostle of God's Glory in Christ, and it's written by Thomas R. Schreiner. It has a few versions out there, uh, so I am sure you guys have heard this book. We're just going to look at kind of some of the text in here, and I've kind of used his format uh, to break us down and to understand what it is that Paul's trying to convey here. So I'm going to read these three paragraphs here that he has written and the fulfillment of what of God's saving purposes. Uh, and then we'll kind of work from there. Now, another thing too, I want to try to work through Paul's uh, eschatology in kind of as much of a chronological perspective as possible and kind of see how it uh, it is unpacked. So, 
uh, first of all, his first few letters were written to the first and second, uh, first and second letters to the Thessalonians, and then it was the two Galatians, first and second Corinthians, Romans, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon, first Timothy, Titus, and then second Timothy, spanning from 52 AD roughly down to 67 AD. Now, there is controversy, controversy surrounding some of these letters and whether they were authentically written by Paul. Uh, some of them were written by scribes that traveled with Paul. Uh, some of them were written by uh, his students and that that he had taught over. But they all carry that kind of same Pauline feel to it. And so you, a lot of theologians are just kind of like, yeah, we, we would attest that Paul write, has written this now. One of the things even is like the book of Ephesians. Some people have argued that, and most scholars, to my knowledge, uh, would agree that Ephesians wasn't written by Paul, but probably one of his scribes or a scholar that, you know, sat underneath him. So that being not a, an issue that we're going to tackle on these episodes, um, the authentic, authenticity, because what we can all agree on as Christians that the canon of Scripture is complete the books that are in there are breathed out by God, and therefore they are used and should be um, taken and as serious as every other book. So I want to read these three paragraphs, and then we're going to kind of unpack uh, what is going on here. So we have seen throughout this book that eschatology pervades Pauline theology, particularly the tension between the already but not yet. So first of all, I want to stop on this one sentence because this is kind of the crux to Pauline theology is that it's already, but not yet. Now, I want to kind of highlight that moment because in one of, in, in some of my theology, that's kind of a basis to what we understand. And that's, again, an amillennialist perspective is we're already in the middle of things, but not everything yet is complete. So it's the already, but not yet. I know that doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's makes it should make sense if you've followed along with this. We've used that phrase quite a bit uh, in those four shows on the end of the times. And we also talked about it, I believe, in Genesis, a few of the shows in the Genesis part. So that's kind of his that's Paul's, you know, crux, right? It's the there's things that are going on. There's things that Christ has done and is doing and then there's the not yet right and we can say that christ is actively saving people and that's actually one of the functions of the holy spirit that the holy spirit is bringing faith to people and he's doing so by his word being preached and that is the already those are things that are happening now the church is building and that's something that's been going on since the ascension of christ but not yet is the shattering of the heavens, right? We read that in Matthew in the Olivet Discourse, right? Christ is going to shatter those heavens and the trumpet blast will sound and his angels will go and gather the elect. That's the not yet part that Paul's talking about. And we'll actually see some of that in his writing and, and kind of even some of, you can maybe call it some of his lamentation, right? Where Paul is, is calling out, oh Lord, come, as he writes in 1 Corinthians 16, 21, he makes that declaration, oh, Lord, come, right? It's that everything is ready, make it happen right now type thing. So it's the already but not yet. So 
there's a lot of uh, probably do a whole show on just this, you know, these four words here. All right. The salvation of believers has already been inaugurated, but not yet consummated. The future hope of salvation is an anchor for all of life. It represents ultimate reality and the certain destination of all believers. The hope of future redemption runs like a thread through all of Paul's theology. It is woven into every theme of its writings. For instance, the last chapter we explored Paul's view of human governing authorities. Such authorities in Paul's mind were provisional and temporary, functioning as rulers in the interim between the first and second coming of Christ. Realizing this truth prevents Christians from defying the state or from expecting the kingdom of God to manifest itself in the world. The hope of future glorification, therefore, cannot be shunted aside uh, to the uh, periphery of Paul's thoughts, nor can we segment it so it is merely represents the last topic when organizing Paul's theology, a topic neatly segregated from all that has preceded it. The hope of future of the future permanence every dimension of Paul's theology, reminding his readers that God, that God's purpose will be realized. So uh, we're going to get into some scripture here, but I, I really want to make sure that people understand we're not going to get into obviously the governing aspects in Romans 13 that this book is talking about, but there are, you know, people try to categorize. And this is, I think, sometimes can be a flaw with modern Christianity as we try. And look, I love systematic books. I think they are a phenomenal help in understanding difficult doctrines. But we sometimes try to over-systematize our thinking and we make it so granular that it loses its Christianity essence, that it takes away the simplicity of the gospel. Um, in case in point, so I'm just going to make this, this is a side tangent. Um, my, uh, I have, you know, my brother-in-law who listens to this show on a, on a semi-regular basis. So if you're listening, I, I applaud you for doing so good and fine, sir. And, uh, but he's attending a new church in his town. And so he, my wife and I were listening to a sermon and that's another conversation for another time between the three of us. But, you know, we got on the topic, my wife and I did after we listened to this sermon, we were talking about the gospel. And I said, you know, the problem I feel that churches today in general and at a macro level around the world have lost the differentiation between law and gospel. And not only that, but we forget the simplicity of the gospel in its essence that the gospel is Christ forgives your sins. And then you can go up a level and say, what is the gospel really? And it's, you know, kind of completeness is, you know, Christ came, Christ lived a perfect life. Christ died a, the death of sinners and he forgives you of your sin. And he rose from the grave and he is seated at the right hand of the father. And you can kind of, you know, add or take away a few of the words, but that is really the crux of the life of Christ. And so that in itself is gospel. And, and we get so lost into all of these secondary doctrines. We get lost into eschatology and ch chasing after something that we, we so want. We want the coming of Christ. We want this world to be washed away and sin to be removed. Obviously, that would be fantastic. But it's not for us to call. 
and 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 so then we then we go even deeper and we say we we get so wrapped up in the you know um social justice gospel it's not really the gospel but it's us creating laws and trying to trying to be more righteous and trying to say if i do these things then god will approve me well that's not going to happen you know and so that's why i'm kind of side tangent here because you know this book that thomas wrote is a good deep dive into all of things that Paul writes about and it, and it in a sense could really kind of systematize his epistles. And, and I kind of sometimes feel like that takes away from the bigger picture of, of what Paul was writing about. And it, and it sometimes can be, um, it can be aggravating, right? I think, like I said, we, we try to over systematize things and that can sometimes lead to, disappointing uh ourselves and trying to think we understand something uh, when when we try to make the gospel more complex than what it really is and uh, we should be focusing solely on the simplicity of the gospel and delivering that now obviously we need the law we need to understand how to uh kill our you know people in the law if we're a pastor or we need to understand how to give the law to those who we're uh, evangelizing to, but then we need to come through with the gospel and bring them out of that because nobody's going to be redeemed by doing the law. You're not going to be redeemed by, you know, as Paul wrote in Romans 13, obeying, you know, the governments perfectly because you're not going to as a Christian. So anyways, side tangent done. So we move on. When the future promises are realized, God will be glorified, honored, and praised. Uh, as God, as 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And to the glory of Father, to the glory of God the Father, as Philippians 2, 10 and 11 say, all things will be reconciled in Christ, Colossians 1.20. And God's plan to sum up all things in Christ, Ephesians 1.10, will be completed. Believers marvel at and enjoy God's grace for endless ages. Ephesians 2, 7, 3, 10, and 2 Thessalonians 1, 10. The missionary task that anointed Paul will be finished in God's plan of including both Jews and Gentiles, Romans 9 through 11, which we'll discuss in, in another episode, and Ephesians 2, uh, 2 and 3 will have reached its consummation. The suffering of the present era will just be a memory. The glorification promised will be a reality, and the sufferings of the present will seem small compared to the beauty uh, that has dawned Romans 8, 18, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, God's saving work and believers will be finished and any talk of not yet will be passe. The structures of the present world order will cease in the world and a world of endless joy will commence. So here's what we're understanding from this, right? This is kind of what Paul's writing is trying to convey its ultimate message. It's, it's not necessarily the cherry picking of scripture that a lot of people enjoy doing that, you know, we get into like, Oh, thir for, uh, first and second Thessalonians talk about the rapture. Well, let's look at kind of Paul's overarching theology here to really understand, is Paul really talking about a rapture in these moments? Probably not. What Paul's getting at is these are the things that will be happening and will come to pass for the already, but not yet scenario 
So God will be glorified and honored. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. All things will be reconciled in Christ. God's plan will be complete. And all believers will marvel and enjoy God's grace for the endless age. That's exactly what Paul is writing towards. That is kind of his end goal. It's not that Christ is going to shatter the heavens and and come down and save everybody. I mean, obviously, that's part of this. He's not writing that, you know, we're going to be raptured up at these untimed moments. But this is Paul's goal is to, first of all, preach the gospel to these towns where it was pagans and 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 in, in a lot of cases Jews too that uh, Paul encountered on his travels, but Paul's literally going out to preach the gospel, and in his letters he's writing these are the things that will happen, and these are the things that will come to pass, and and I like how you know Thomas kind of phrases it here: uh, God's saving work in believers will be finished. And any talk of the not yet will be passe. So that's what Paul's writing towards. That's the end goal is that all of these things in that already and not yet, that not yet will be gone. It'll be over. It'll be thrown out the window because everything will be in the here and now. The kingdom of God is at hand and it is present and it is in his being, you know, and it is already established and the believers can enjoy Christ for eternity. Now, how we get there is the road we're going to travel. Now, we will look at some of Paul's writings, and we will start to kind of pick apart, hopefully in a, uh, I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to try to keep it chronological, uh, and so we'll kind of see where we end up in this greater timeline of things. But uh, I want to try and walk us through some of these writings, and, and we're going to look at them uh, one by one. Now, again, I, I, before we dig into that aspect, understand that there's a lot of those little, there's a lot of little nuances that Paul uses and he uses it here, you know, kind of over and over again. But I want to ensure that we're going to touch the big pieces. We're going to get those ones that people love to take out of context and, and love to break and mold and twist and bend and all that stuff. We're going to look at those. There are a ton of little things in there. And so if you have a knack for eschatology, go pick up Gerard Voss's book, Pauline Eschatology. Um, this one here that I'm using, Paul, the Epistle of God's Glory in Christ, isn't an eschatology book. It just has a good section on it. It has a lot of other Pauline theology in it. And so you can use it. It's really good. It's not a long rate. It's 500 pages, maybe, give or take. Um, and and I, like I said, I think I read it in a week. I think I talked about it once on a show before. It's really good. It helped me understand the character of Paul a little bit better. But, uh, you know, there's, first of all, there's not a ton of data out there on on Paul's, like, collected uh, eschatology. There's just not a lot of, you know, good, reliable sources that really discuss it uh, in, in, in full in depth. So um, I do have, I did have one particular source that I came across and uh, I'm going to see if maybe uh, I can't find it really quick before I kind of um, go over everything and kind of uh, move into it. That's not it. So I'm kind of just 
not wasting time, but I'm looking here on, as I kind of forget where I found it. Uh, maybe it was, I got to search by a different engine. Now, remember I got, I got a PC upstairs in my, in my office and then I've got this in my recording studio. And so I'm kind of, uh, I don't have all the same web pages on both. And, uh, it's tough because, you know, I had some really good sources upstairs saved and then I have, um, I have to come down here and I get, uh, I get kind of a clean slate if you wouldn't. Sometimes all the pages don't like, even though I'm signing to Google, it doesn't cross over. And this is me just filling time. I'll add to the show's length. So I cannot find that web page. I'll tell you what too. Um, if you're searching for eschatology and you're looking at, um, and you come across, uh, the NT Wright stuff, don't bother reading that. And, and I'll be flat on honest. I am not an NT Wright fan. I think he's got, he, he holds to one of these new uh, perspectives of Paul and it's quite dangerous. It, it really distorts the nature of, uh, of Paul and what he's done and who he is. And so I really, I really highly recommend to uh to get rid of any of that kind of thing out of your particular library if you would and just go on um with your life outside of that so um i just cannot find this web page and i'm still looking 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 but it's like eluding me now there's some good stuff like uh, christianity today has you know a good website uh good source on it and kind of gives Paul's, uh, mission trips here, Paul's arrest and his death. Um, and then there's obviously you have to subscribe to their stuff, but you know, if you do want to contribute, they have kind of a good resource. I wouldn't say it's, you know, I I don't subscribe to it, so I don't, I really can't tell you whether it's vast or not, but okay. Um, I cannot find this article and I've probably wasted enough of your time with it anyways. So what we're going to get into now is, uh, kind of some of his stuff from a, uh, chronological perspective. Um, and we're going to kind of go from there. So, uh, believers, in, uh, obviously love Jesus Christ and we long for his return. That's, that's a no brainer. We, we want Christ here we want to enjoy a sinless life and if you say otherwise you are fooling yourself and you're probably not a real christian because how could you want the pleasures of this world over christ and so that's why we see some you know we see it often that paul will kind of do this lament um in, uh, in, in, you know, in his writings. And he says here in first Corinthians 16, Oh Lord come it is not difficult to see that the eschatological urgency preventing uh, in Paul's letters is intertwined with Christ's future coming. Indeed, what Christ, uh, when, even when Christ's coming remains unmentioned it is probably implied in the consummations of God's, uh, purposes in view. So what we are, you know, primarily going to do in the this particular the rest of this episode um as we've kind of given a introductory to Paul's 
eschatology and theology here. Uh, we're going to look at uh, just the texts that really talk about the second coming of Christ. We're going to really just emphasize where that is specifically noted um, because we kind of get, like I said, hints of it throughout the rest of his text, but we really want to dive in on the things that are explicit. Uh, first of all, we're going to look at first Thessalonians four sixteen, and we're going to read this in context. Uh, now, if you remember earlier, I'd mentioned the order of the epistles. This is one of his first writings. Again, this is a letter that uh, has can kind of be tossed back and forth with whether Paul authentically wrote it or not. Not an argument I'm taking on this show. Starting in the 13th verse, the title of this frame to close out chapter four is the coming of the Lord. Paul writes, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. All right. So verse 13, right off the bat, telling us one thing, first of all, these people who are asleep, they're dead. That's it. I, sorry to break, burst your bubble here. They're not sleeping in the bed. They're not wrapped up in a down blanket. They're dead. And that's what Paul's writing, right? Because he goes on to say that you may not grieve as others do who do not have hope. All right. So here's another hint. The world in death has no hope. And I put a post about it actually earlier a couple of days ago around evolution versus the Christian view. In the secular view, there is no promise. There is no hope for those who pass. But in Christianity, we have hope. And I can tell you this. I, I performed a funeral yesterday as I'm recording this episode. It's a Tuesday night. I did a funeral yesterday morning for a congregate who had passed away. And in my liturgy, I explicitly, continuously expressed the hope we have in the resurrection body. And some of it was Paul's writing. Some of it was John's. And, and, and it, was, it was a beautiful moment to come and, and deliver this promise to people because it gives them the hope that they, that they need in these moments. So that's what Paul's writing, that you may not grieve as others do because, see, Death for a Christian isn't always a grieving moment. Yeah, I it stinks to lose somebody, but we know we have the promise. We have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring him those who have fallen asleep. All right, verse 14. Very simple to take on. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring him, Christ, those who have fallen asleep. So Paul's just going right through this, right? For this, we declare that to you a word from the Lord that we who are alive, not, not here, take me, listen to this. This isn't Paul saying we as in me and you. But we generally of those who are just collectively alive at the time that this moment happens. Uh, let me find my place that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. All right. We're getting into some waters here. Bear with me. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. This is the verse uh, that I had mentioned for 16. 
for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead of Christ will rise first. Now, does that sound familiar? Does it sound familiar? I want to reiterate here, uh, bring up this text here. Um, there's actually references all over scripture. I mean, this it, it's just saturated. There's uh, references to Matthew 16, uh, Joel 2.11, 2 Thessalonians, as we'll get to in a little bit, uh, Jude 9, uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians, Revelation 14. Uh, but I also want to make a note here. Um, I'm going to open up another Bible tab and get to that and go to Matthew because I want you to see how these two correlate back and forth, right? So we talked through all of this stuff in the Olivet Discourse a couple of weeks over, over the course of like seven weeks or whatever we spent in that. I, I Please forgive me. I, I I spent a lot of time in these and I forget where how long we actually spent there. But we get to uh, chapter 24, verse 29, and Jesus writes, or Matthew writes, as Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes on earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. Right there. Verse 31 and 2 Thessalonians 4.16. Right? Paul's, Paul's not saying something any different than what Jesus is telling us. And and and, I, and I'll be honest. This is the thing that kind of frustrates me sometimes when we get into these uh, eschatological conversations. Is that um, it feels like some of these people are trying to either elevate or decrease the words of Paul. Paul is using scripture, and I, as I just said in in verse sixteen, there's a lot of scripture references here, but there's also that coordination back to Matthew twenty four in the Olivet Discourse. So we have this connection, and we ought to make note of that. Verse 17, though, then we who are alive, again, not saying that Paul and his crowd, but we generally Christians who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another in these words. Okay. First of all, I love this text. Second of all, this is not talking about a rapture. It's not talking about a secret rapture. It's not talking about anything rapture related in regards to the dispensational premillennialist or the historical premillennialist position. This is not talking about any of that. This is a reference to what Jesus said in Matthew 24 in regards to the coming of the son of man. The language is the same. Paul literally says that for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Matthew writes these things that Jesus has just said. This is what is going to happen when the son of man comes. So this is again, going back to that Olivet discourse and unpacking that Paul's just giving a illustration of these are the things that are going to happen when 
if it's if it's in my time, if it's in future Christians' time, we who are alive will be caught up with him. So that's it, right? Christ says that his angels will go down and collect the elect, and the dead in Christ will be risen with him. So we get that the, the dead will rise, that's the resurrection, and that those who are alive in that moment will be caught up with him. Now, we can get into the discussions of new heavens, new earth, whether we are going to go to heaven, a physical place that's being prepared for us, or is it going to be a heaven and earth that come here and are established here? Another theology, different discussion date. Uh, actually, it's quite a fascinating one if you really want to dig into it, because there's a lot of little uh, nuances, if you would, on how the language is uh, pushed forward. Anyways. So the return of Jesus cannot refer here to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, since the text says that he will descend from heaven, nor can it re be reduced to a private event and one's inner consciousness. He will return publicly and visibly from heaven as Philippians 3.20 uh, announces, but our citizenship is in heaven and we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will be uh, accommodated by the noise uh, of shouting and an archangel's voice and a trumpet. So Philippians falls, you know, was written about 10 years after this writing. And the text that's referenced here in the notes doesn't necessarily point to an eschatological event. Just that we await a savior and our citizenship is in heaven. Again, does that heaven mean new heavens and new earth here? Or is it new heavens and new earth in another place? Another theology, another time. I know I keep repeating that. Now, I do want to make a note because my notes do say that the text is different between Matthew 24 and what Paul's writing here. And the big difference is that the Lord himself will descend. Now, there's a reference here. And we will uh, look this text up. And uh, make sure I find the right way to do it. Matthew 16, 27. And the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. That is verse 27. That is the section in Matthew 16 after Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. And verses 27 through the end of the chapter, right before the transfiguration, that is taking up your cross and following Jesus. So um, we get some, you know, so that hard punching text in here that's kind of sprinkled throughout. And uh, um, we get this verse in 27. It's kind of nestled in here. If you would, I want to read 24 and, and to the end of the chapter here, it's 28. Uh, then Jesus said, told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels, and there's a reference here to uh, chapter 13, verses 41, uh, in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are none standing here that not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, that gets into some of the stuff we talked about with the Olivet Discourse and referencing to 
what is it that is actually meaning this? So 27 is that kind of jumping off point that kind of gives us some context to understanding the text in Matthew 24 and what Paul's writing here in 1 Thessalonians. Again, this text does not necessarily point us to a rapture. And, and I'm going to take a hard stance on that. And, and, and I'm sure I'll get people that want to give me pushback. But I'm going to take a hard stance that this text in 1 Thessalonians does not allude to a rapture if we understand the text correctly. And, and I'm bringing in other text. I'm looking at correlating and, and other words that Christ has given us to fully and comprehensively understand what is going on here. Because if we don't, then, yeah, if I read it at face level, yeah, you know, the Lord's going to come back and uh, those who are alive, they're gone. They're going to go to the rapture, right? And that's like that's like the left behind books, you know, where we're just all waiting. Is it going to be today? Is it going to be right now? Is it going to happen when I'm sleeping? You know, it's it just it creates a false sense of mind you get into this routine where you're like is it going to happen today and then you start to get really worried am i good enough to be raptured did i am i doing enough then you get into a works theology and it's a mess so that's why i don't really care to get into the whole rapture theology because i feel like it gives a false sense of security or it gives a it really messes with your assurance and your assurance shouldn't be found in anything outside of the person and the works of Christ. And it shouldn't be, you know, like you shouldn't be hanging on by, you know, a hair clip of is the rapture going to happen and am I going to be good enough to go? So Jesus's physical return uh, fits with the notion of this coming. That's the second coming, right? The uh, parousia, and I probably butcher that Greek word. Uh, you know, I should probably actually take the time and put it in like Google Translate and do all that. But again, I make pretty clear that I'm not a Greek theologian or anything. If you really want to learn Greek, Chris Roseborough is phenomenal at Greek and Hebrew. I mean, that's what his degrees are in. Uh, he's brilliant. Uh, um, James White, another brilliant. You guys, you listen to me, you know these guys. Uh, they're phenomenal. Me, not so much. I haven't gotten that far in my education, and maybe one day I will be, you know, at least be able to read and, and write, um, you know, uh, uh, Greek and Hebrew. So, anyways, moving on. This term is used at the arrival of Stephanus to meet Paul at 1 Corinthians 16, 17, um, or the coming of Titus to meet with the Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Uh, so again, similar language being used in the writings in uh, both letters to the church in Corinth. Similarly, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaks of the Lord's coming, uh, as referring to the second coming, uh, refu re obviously referring to a future time period, 1 Thessalonians 2.19, 3.13, 4.15, 5 and 5.23, and 2 Thessalonians. So we're going to read these uh, as we... Um, come up here. It is uh, 2.19 says, for what is the hope or crown, uh, I'm sorry, for what is our hope or crown or joy of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? It is, is it not you? 3.13, so that we may establish your hearts blameless in the holiness before God the Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. 4.15, for this we declare that you by the word from the Lord that 
we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. That is what we just read a few minutes ago. 523 says, now may the grace of God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body keep be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, and then we'll get into the second Thessalonians stuff. So, uh, in the New Testament, the word coming always has an idea of a physical presence, as Paul has written in 2 Corinthians and Philippians, uh, confirming this notion of a physical return of Christ. Now we see that after the resurrection, right? The physical body of Jesus is walking the earth and talking to his disciples and teaching, again, kind of, right? If you would take his rebuttal to Peter and his bringing Peter back into the, the, into the group in John 21 and then... Uh, the early chapters of Acts and how they are going to uh, be used. Uh, the public nature of this event is confirmed by the presence of angels at his return, uh, as noted in Second Thess- or in First Thessalonians. Similarly, in this in Second Thessalonians, his coming is described as a revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his mighty angels. In this later text, the word uh, is not. Uh, coming, but apocalypsis, the revelation. Jesus will be unrevealed, or will be unveiled from heaven in glory to punish unbelievers. And at the same time, believers will be marveled at his beauty. So, some of these things to really pick up on here is that, again, the, these some of these Greek words that Paul used either denote the second coming of Christ or they denote a um, the apocrypha, uh, the apocrypha of Christ, the revelation. These are this is Christ coming with his, in a sense, his wrath because he's going to divide the sheep from the goats, which we talked about last week. He is going to punish the unrepentant, the goats, those who are sinners, and he's going to take his sheep and they will uh, enjoy eternal rest with him. Now, again, there's a lot that's going on in what Paul's writing. And, uh, and that's just looking at, uh, so that looks at just the first, uh, Thessalonians. And then we're going to look at second Thessalonians, um, probably shortly. Now I, I did mention that Paul's letters might be, you know, three weeks, but you know, I felt like there was probably more in terms to an intro and, you know, and, and then I had expected, you know, we're already at 52 minutes on this recording. And there's still a ton yet left to go, and we will we still have some sections left to kind of tackle. Uh, I want to tackle the return of Christ, his resurrection, and waiting for the Christ's return and the judgment of unbelievers. So maybe we'll do that next week. So we might just go ahead and make this a three-part series. Um, tonight was first introductory and uh, first Thessalonians 4, because there's just a lot going on in what Paul's writing. But I think it helps us to understand kind of the complexity and and everything of what Paul's writing, but it also helps us that if we understand the text and we understand where we've come from in this series, it helps us to kind of build this case that Paul's really just reiterating the words that Christ has given us already. So um, that is going to conclude this episode, I feel, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm just at the end of the night, and uh, I got to go take care of my daughter and uh, we'll pick back up next week. We're going to look at, I've got a couple of these sections that I've got some notes on, and uh, we're going to uh, kind of pick apart through some of these other writings. And First uh, Corinthians is a big one. Uh, we're going to look at uh, some of this stuff in, 
uh, where else here? First and second Timothy. And, uh, we're going to kind of just plow through it, but then we're going to do a whole episode by itself with the future of Israel and Romans nine through 11. So we're going to look at that entirely and what Paul's writing about, because that does have eschatological importance. So I want to make sure we give that the due diligence and we will take that on. So I hope you guys got something out of this show and no, it wasn't, you know, as, uh, saturated in scripture as I originally set out to be, but sometimes I kind of feel in the middle of the show that I'm led to do something a little different than what I set out to be originally. And I think we've focused pretty good on first Thessalonians. And I hope that kind of helps remove that fear of the rapture from your mind. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoy this. We will pick back up next week with uh, some more looking at the returns of Christ in Paul's writings. Uh, and then we're going to look at some of how he depicts the resurrection. And then obviously the judgment of, of unbelievers, which will lead us right into uh, Israel and Romans 9, because there is a lot to pick up in those couple of sections. So that is it for me, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you guys have a great week. Thanks for tuning in, and I will see you next week. God bless. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.